Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. It is good to be here with you today. I'm so excited to get to come and to share the word with you. I want to start by sharing a story with you. A story. Um, I think that I think that helps us that helps us learn from our passage today. I'll take you back to the year 1911. There was a race that was happening. Uh, unbeknownst to some people, but the race was to be the first people to accomplish major geographical feats and particularly to be the first people to reach the North Pole and the South Pole. The North Pole had just been reached, and so now there was a race on to reach the South Pole. Captain Robert Falcon Scott, what a name, uh, Captain Scott believed from, uh, from Britain that he would be the first man to reach the South Pole. And so he undertook this endeavor. But what I'm about to tell you is unfortunately a story of tragedy. It did not go well. In fact, if you know, if you're familiar with the story, what it resulted in was Captain Scott and the four men that he took with him to try to reach the South Pole, not making it back home. What I can tell you leading up to it, that everything we know is that Captain Scott was an explorer And yet he surrounded himself with people that were not experts in the necessary areas that they needed. When they went to try to prepare for this trip, there is a long list of things that in hindsight we can look back and and think, wow, that was not good. That was not helpful. Of the many things, one was that their transportation, Captain Scott had had bad experiences with sled dogs on previous trips, and so he didn't want to rely heavily on dogs, and thought he, in, instead, he thought the more noble way to do it was using manpower. So he brought some dogs, and then they thought they would use horses, ponies, because he said they looked better. And then he said the most noble way was for men to drag the sled. And so their plan was that for their team of 65 to bring... These, they also had three um, motorized sleds uh, to tell you just a, a glimpse of how this went. They literally lost their biggest one unloading it from the ship. Uh, they unloaded it on too thin of ice, and it sunk immediately. Next, the two other motorized sleds, they decided the guy that actually was the mechanic and the one that knew how to use them, well, because he was a lesser-ranking man in the Navy, they didn't bring him with them. And soon, both of those sleds broke, and they were useless. Soon, before they had reached uh, their first base point, the horses were no longer able to go on because they kept sinking in the snow because they were not wearing snowshoes. And the man that Captain Scott had put in charge of bringing the snowshoes said he didn't like them. So they just left. 
In addition to this, Captain Scott knew about this phenomenon called creeping, which was that in their fuel containers, in the extreme cold, it would leak out fuel as it froze, and that there were ways to handle this, but he completely ignored it. And so all of their cached fuel, all the fuel reserves that they were supposed to stash along the route, significantly depleted. So that when they came to them, they did not have enough fuel to make food, to melt water, to keep warm in the extreme cold conditions. On top of this, he brought only one navigator, one skilled navigator to go with him into the, the depths of the journey. And this man, because he was by himself, he also decided he wanted to use a tool that was a heavier tool at the time, so it required more manpower to pull. And because he was by himself, he made many mistakes which led to them being off track multiple times. Captain Scott also did not lay out the necessary amount of uh, stops along the way. You see, before they were to go make the expedition, there was this whole uh, period in which they would bring people and set out marking the path as far as they could go until they got to their depot, which would then be the launching point for the final expedition, where he was supposed to take four men to go on to the South Pole. He used only one flag and did not mark along the way the different places that they cached fuel as um, carefully as they should have. And because of this, when the extreme weather hit, their tracks were often covered up and they could not relocate the places they needed to go. And so they had to go longer between stops than they were supposed to. In addition to all of this, uh, although all the planning was for only four men to go on that final expedition from their last depot um, to the South Pole, at the last minute, Captain Scott decided to add a fifth man. So their rations were only calculated for four men, and it turns out that actually, again, upon looking back, they had woefully uh, misunderstood the rationing and the, the amount of energy that was needed at the higher altitudes to pull the man sleds was not enough food. So they were already underprepared for four people, and now they added a fifth. And he also didn't consider the, the lack of vitamin C and B, and so now the men, by the time they reached the South Pole, were being plagued by scurvy. It is a woeful tale of what happens when we don't count the costs. And unfortunately for Captain Scott and his men, they made it to the South Pole to find someone else had been there just weeks before them. After staying one day, they turned around and began to embark back. And it is on that trip back that all five of the men succumbed and eventually uh, perished. Captain Scott is believed to be the last man, and on March 28th, he's written in his journal, which was recovered later with his body, and he described saying, I don't blame anyone. There was a, a, a litany of catastrophes that we undertook, and poor planning on my part and different things, but I don't blame anyone. I accept this fate. But I can't help but think there's even more to the story, that if we go back and look, how many different times just one different decision could have helped them? Just one more prepared, thought-out plan could have saved these men's lives. The story is a tragedy. And again, it teaches us the consequences of not fully planning out and thinking through an endeavor before taking on something like this. And what, what I want us to hear today, why do I tell this story? Because I believe today Jesus is trying to tell us something similar. 
story is not just a story of an Antarctic expedition, but it's similar to what Jesus is trying to tell us in our passage today. We cannot fully follow him if we do not first count the cost. We have to understand what it is we're undertaking. And to go in so without doing that is reckless and can lead to the same type of peril we just heard in this story. And I think, sadly, for so many of us in our faith, in our walk with God, that's exactly where we can find ourselves. We can find ourselves like these men, not fully thinking it through, going through the motions, and then reaping the consequences of what comes from that. What I want to say to you today, though, as, as we begin this story, and we're gonna, I'm going to pray for us one more time, and we're going to launch into the text. I, I, with this, I do think what Jesus has for us here are, is very somber. There are three somber warnings of what it looks like to follow him. But with that, what, what I want to pray for you, what I've been praying for myself and for, for you here today, is that you would see, that God would give you ears to hear and eyes to see, that along with these somber warnings, there is a sweet mercy. There is a sweet, sweet mercy. And what Jesus is doing here, if we have ears to hear, is actually inviting us deeper into him, into relationship with him. So so if you'll stick with me, we're going to ride through some hard things, right? I think the words of Jesus here are meant to be challenging. But what I believe is that through that, God will speak And show us the sweet, sweet mercy of his grace as he calls us deeper into relationship with him. Let's pray together one more time. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you teach us, you instruct us, you guide us, you lead us. I'm just so thankful for the the reality that you've spoken to us. You've made yourself known to us, God. Thank you for revealing yourself. Thank you for Jesus, for the cross, for the resurrection. I pray today, would you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts and minds to know and believe. Help us to treasure your word in our hearts so we won't sin against you. And God, would we receive these somber warnings of Jesus, but would we also sense the sweet mercy that you give us alongside? We thank you, God. We love you. We pray this all in your holy and blessed name, Jesus. Amen. I think there are three key elements of discipleship we see in this passage. There are three key elements. Discipleship has a call. There is a call to discipleship. There is a commitment. And there is a cost. There is a call to discipleship. There is a commitment to discipleship with Jesus. And there is a cost. Where do we see this? Well, first, let's start with the call. I think the call is, is obvious in our passage. We see there are three men. Two of the men speak first to Jesus, and the second one is the one recorded for us in Scripture that Jesus first. speaks to. What does he say to him? Follow me. Everybody say, follow me. Jesus is calling out. This is the essential call of discipleship. Follow me. We can even see it in the other two men. Even though they speak first to Jesus, what is it that they say? They repeat these very words to Jesus as they call out to him. Jesus, we will follow you. I will follow you, but first. I will follow you, but... And so we see this call to follow Jesus is both explicit in Jesus' words and implied through the other two men's response to Jesus. And so we can say this is the uh, essential call of discipleship. If we look back 
In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, we think about the calling of the apostles. What does Jesus say in Matthew 4.19? Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So again, this essential call of discipleship is to follow Jesus. We follow Jesus. We imitate his life in all that we do, in our thoughts, our words, and actions, in everything. We follow after Jesus. This is the call. Right. And what we can also see, there's a second part to it that's here. Look what Jesus says to the second man. He says, you leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And that Matthew four chapter, we can see in verse 17 and 23, right on the bookends of Jesus calling the apostles. Jesus is doing this very thing. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's going out and doing the work. He's sharing. He's telling people he's healing people. He's pointing people to God. And so we can say the call is to follow Jesus and to go and proclaim the kingdom of God with our words and with our very lives. To proclaim the kingdom of God recognizes that there was a different kingdom, right? There was an older kingdom. See, all of us had a different kingdom that we served first. See, all of us chose our own way. All of us were following the kingdom of self. The kingdom of the world or the kingdom, you name it, right? But Jesus comes along and says there is a better kingdom. There is a new kingdom and a new king. And you can leave all that other stuff behind. See, the old kingdoms only brought bondage and slavery. They only entrapped us more in our sin. But Jesus says there's a new kingdom. There's a new king. And you can know this. You can follow this. So follow me and you'll see the new kingdom. Follow me and then go about... Being about proclaiming that new kingdom. See, this is the call of the gospel, right? Essentially, the the call of discipleship is first helping us understand the gospel. That all of us were sinners. All of us chose to go our own way. All of us chose chose to to be apart from God. And while we were still sinners, God tells us he showed his love for us, but that Christ died for us. Right. God didn't leave us in our brokenness. He didn't leave us separated from him. See, the Bible tells us the wages of sin, what we've earned by our sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that any who come to him, any who cry out to him, any who say, Jesus, I need you and call out to Jesus as Lord and Savior will be saved. We're forgiven of the old things, the brokenness, and and then we're given the cleanness, the new life that Jesus promises, that Jesus earned us. Because Jesus didn't just come and talk the talk, he walked the walk, right? Jesus went all the way. He lived the perfect life. He died on the cross for us. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave, defeating the power of sin and death so that if we trust in him, we can know, we can know we have life in him. So this is the good news of the gospel. God didn't leave us on our own. And I think this is essential. Again, the start of the call of discipleship is starts with the gospel. To follow Jesus is to recognize we need him. We were broken. We were part of the broken kingdoms. And now we can be a part of his new kingdom. His kingdom of life. His kingdom of love. His kingdom of glory. And so we follow Jesus and we proclaim the kingdom of God in all that we do. As we think about this, I was thinking we can look back to other places in the Gospels as well. But we again could boil it down to say to follow Jesus is really encompasses all of these things, right? Because we can't follow Jesus without proclaiming 
the kingdom of God. We can't follow Jesus without loving our neighbor and loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. We can't follow Jesus without helping the, the poor and the sick and the downcast. We can't follow Jesus without going to the places where Jesus went. And so if we follow Jesus, we hear the gospel, we receive the gospel, then we begin to live out that gospel with our words and with our lives. So, the call is to follow Jesus. The essential call of discipleship, we hear, is to follow Jesus. I can't help but think about, uh, as these men come to Jesus, what were they thinking? What were their expectations? Right? Especially, think about this first man. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, so this man cries out to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. What did this man expect? What was he thinking? What was his heart? What was his motive? Why was he coming to Jesus? See, see, what is revealed for us in some capacity, we know he understood somewhat who Jesus was. Jesus was a renowned teacher. He'd been doing miracles. He'd been doing all these great things. And so in, in some capacity, he had to know who Jesus was, right? Because it would be kind of weird if he had no idea who Jesus was and he just came up to a random stranger and was like, I'll follow you wherever you go. Right? That's a heavy thing to say, both for the person who said it and the one receiving so, so in some capacity, he understands something about Jesus. And yet, by Jesus' response, we get that he didn't fully understand, right? But because like in Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, it seems that Jesus can cut straight to the heart of what is happening here. And his response is that the, the foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus says, I, I have no shelter. I have nothing. Even more, we could think of like the words of, of Peter in First Peter talking about Jesus saying, I have no home in this world. I'm in exile. Are you ready for that? What was this man thinking as he come to Jesus? Did, did he think that if I come, maybe I'll see a miracle? Do you think if I come to Jesus, I can learn to be a great teacher and one day have a good following of my own like Jesus has? Did, did he come from some misplaced sense of wanting to do good in the world and, and seeking to be better at that? Did he come knowing Jesus was Lord and Savior and still just got caught up in some of the other things? I, I think what Jesus is trying to point us back to is this call to remember that he is the Lord of all creation. And the call to follow him is not a small one. It's not a light thing. This is the God. This is the one true God of all creation. And he is saying, follow me. It beckons the question. What do we come to Jesus expecting? Similar to the question earlier asked in, in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus says, what do the crowds say? Who, who do the crowds say that I am? And he asked the apostles, but who do you say that I am? Here, we have to ask ourselves, we need to do the same reflection and ask in our hearts, what do we come to Jesus expecting? Take a moment. Do you come acknowledging who he truly is 
and the fullness of his power and the greatness of his love and all that he's called us to? Do you come because somebody else told you about him? Do you come because it seems like it's the right thing to do? Do you come because you want the good things you can get from him? The reality is, I think, you know, I don't want to answer for for all of you, uh, but here's the truth. All of us could say yes to those things at some point in time, right? All of us have been this man. Here's some good news. Jesus knows our hearts. And he knows our impure motives. He knows our lack of ability to to be a hundred percent, right? And he still loves us. He still accepts us. The call to follow Jesus is not a call to get it all right before you come to him. It's not a call to say we got to check our motives and if, if I'm Somewhere off like this man, then he's going to reject me. No, what Jesus is trying to do, what, hopefully what we see here, Jesus doesn't ever rebuke the men's desire to follow him. What he's doing is correcting or challenging what that actually means. And that's what Jesus does for us today. So if you hear this and there's this inclination inside of you that wants to recoil, that wants to step back, that wants to close off, I, I want to just challenge you right now to ask God to help, ask you, God not to help you not do that. Say, God, help me to be open and to listen and to receive this word. Because Jesus wants you to follow him. You don't have to have it all figured out. He can take our broken motives. And when we bring them to him, he turns them into his beautiful truth. He leads us to help follow him. As we think about following Jesus and proclaiming the kingdom of God, we have to remember as we come to him, he he reshapes us and he sends us back out. And to proclaim the kingdom of God is, again, this statement that helps remind us to stay focused, right? At least that's what I was picturing. I think here it's a reminder of the kingdom that we're living for now, right? We don't go out proclaiming the kingdom of, of Gavin, self. We don't even go out proclaiming the kingdom of Redemption Church, Go out proclaiming the kingdom of the one true God. And when we have that before us, then it helps to keep that focus and to remember what it is I've been called to. Follow me. So firstly, we see there's a call to discipleship. But with that, we see there's a commitment. A commitment. And what is the commitment well, it is the follow-through of the call. It's actually doing what we've been called to. Jesus says, follow me, and the commitment is, I will follow you, Lord. And what is implied there, and what Jesus tells us explicitly in other places throughout the gospel, is to follow Jesus means to forsake all others. It means we have no one else. It means there is nothing else we cling to. We let go of everything else, and we say, I am all in for you, Jesus. The commitment to follow Jesus means that now we don't, we let go of the old, right? Think of how Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, the the old has passed away. Behold, it's a new creation. The old is gone. We let go of it. And we move on. We step into the kingdom he's called us to, to follow Jesus. The commitment to the call is to say, yes, Lord. We have to choose, in other words. 
We have to choose. Who will we follow? Look what Jesus says to, to the second and the third man. He says to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Verse 62, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. These responses speak, uh, along with the first one, to the commitment that Jesus is calling us to. When we say we will follow Jesus, the commitment to then follow through and saying, can we go as far as what he said to these other men? I have no shelter. Are you willing to give that up? I have no home in this world. Are you willing to join me as an exile? You, you want to choose your family over me. Family is good. But I'm greater. There's these traditions of the world we'll get into in a minute. And he said, are you going to choose the traditions or are you going to listen to me? Friends, household, will you give it all up for me? The commitment Jesus is laying out is saying, I'm asking for all of you. Not just some piece of you. Not just a part of your life, but the entirety of it. To follow Jesus is to listen to his words and let them completely change us from the inside out and to be a new creation in him. And to walk now out of the gospel that has saved us, living that out in all that we do. I love the response. I think the third response is one of the most helpful when we think about commitment. It says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This city boy loves agricultural metaphors in the Bible. It's so good. It's always a new learning experience for me. But I've spent genuinely a lot of time actually studying and learning from people who know a lot more than I do. And this experience of plowing, it's such a beautiful image here. See, plowing is one of the most tedious works in farming. Right. Plowing is the work of preparing the field to receive the seed. And if you don't do the hard, tedious work of plowing, then you will not get to reap the crop in the end. And so when you plow, you know, there's this instrument, there's different ways to do it. But especially at the time Jesus was talking now, they would either have it attached to an ox or uh, some other animal. Or, or sometimes it would just be a smaller one you could go. But it would be this instrument and this metal blade. And what it's doing is digging up the ground as you grow. And, and particularly, it's making furrows is what they call it. So you want to make straight furrows so that your feel is nice. And neat and is ready to receive the seed. And, and what's really cool about this image is it's really almost somewhat beautiful to imagine this, this field that was just dirt, right? But then now as you do this hard, tedious work, you plow it up into this, this beautiful picture that has these straight lines. And it's ready to be something so much more, right? And what Jesus is saying, he's reminding us, he says, the commitment is such as this. When you're plowing your field, and you're going along, if you look where you're going, you can make straight furrows. But what happens when you look back? What happens? You look back, you turn. 
He says, you, you know, you know the image. These are an agricultural people. He says, you know, the, the pain and the work. If you mess up your furrows, you got to either start all over or you could mess up and, and you have to go back at least a certain way. Or it could just lead to really sloppy work. Right? So the image is clear in their mind. If you are plowing and you look back, you're going to have sloppy work. It's going to mess up the whole thing. And Jesus says, this is the picture of commitment. This is what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. Anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Why? Because now our lives are totally his. We live for the kingdom of God. And if we're constantly looking back, what it means is we're constantly distracted by other kingdoms. We have divided allegiances. And Jesus tells us, you know, a house divided against itself cannot stand. We cannot serve two masters. One will be Lord and the other will be relegated. And Jesus is again trying to speak this to this man. The commitment is such as that you have to choose today. Who will you follow? We put our hand to the plow and look back. It means we're not fully trusting in Jesus, right? There's something that's always calling our attention back. The image evokes for us is similar to that in Genesis, Lot's wife, right? When they were leaving the city, it was being destroyed and God told her not to look back. And she looks back and immediately she faces, faces punishment and, and it's dire. She turned into a pillar of salt. This is her life. This is her life. And what I say, and what I say, I think Jesus is evoking that imagery on purpose here, that the consequences may not be as immediate, but they may be just as dire. If we keep looking back, we miss out on what's before us, which is Jesus. It's what He has for us as Himself. So the question that that I wrestle with. That I want, I'm hoping you wrestle with it, that I think that, that it raises up is, do we have sloppy furrows? What does your field look like? Or, or better, maybe we could ask this, what are you constantly looking back for? What is it? What is it that you constantly look back for? Is it relationships? Is it comfort? Is it financial security? In the age of instant gratification and social media, it is so, so easy to be distracted. This isn't just for for the youngins in here, right? This is for all of us. Nobody gets to escape this anymore. We live in a world where everything is constantly fighting and vying for our attention and says, look here, look here, look here, look here. But the call of Jesus is to look forward, to keep moving. So what is it that we're looking back for? We don't live for the kingdom of TikTok. We don't live for the kingdom of Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat. We don't live for the kingdom of Apple or Samsung. We don't live for the kingdom of being a good parent. Oh, starting to hit a little closer to home, huh? We don't live for the kingdom of other people's praise. We're called to live for the kingdom of God. So what is it you look back for? Do you hear the words of Jesus? Don't put your hand to the plow and look back. It leads to unfit work. 
the, the second man has maybe the most harsh response, or at least in our own, in our own reading, right? These, these words of Jesus can seem harsh, harsh or jarring. And, and if it didn't jar you a little bit reading it, I encourage you to read it again, right? Because I, I think they're meant to be. What does Jesus say? This man comes to him and he says, Lord, let me, for, uh, uh, Jesus tells him, follow me. He says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What is Jesus doing? Does Jesus just like mean and sadistic? Does he, does he not want this group to go any further? Does he not know this is like a really bad gathering strategy? Not a lot of good things being promised here, right? Jesus says, hey, come follow me. And by the way, you'll leave your family and your friends and you won't have a home. It's like, okay, thanks, Jesus. That sounds great. Now, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, right? It's once again reinforcing this idea that you have to choose. Today, you have to choose. Who will you follow? Some commentators believe in this passage. There's different interpretations, right? Some say this, this phrase, let the dead bury their own dead, it's, it's an idiom, an idiomatic saying that, that just means the thing you're talking about is not the thing actually at hand. And that certainly could be the case. Others refer to a cultural practice at the time that said, you know, actually the man's father was already dead. And there's this common practice that you would wait a year after the body had uh, decomposed and you would dig up the bones and reinter them in a different location. And they say this man was actually referring to to that cultural practice. And he's basically saying, Jesus, I I need at least, you know, a year or nine months, however much time is left so that I can finish the ceremony. And Jesus is responding, no, no, no. The call is to follow me now. Right? I think regardless of how we interpret the phrase, the meaning is the same. Jesus is saying you can't live for two different kingdoms. There's only one. And you have to choose today. What I think Jesus wants us to hear from this, though, is again, here's some good news. Anybody ever had uh, divided allegiances? Anybody ever wavered in a commitment to anything? Yeah. Um, again, I think it would be all of us. Jesus says, follow me. Come. Come with your, your broken understanding of what that means and come with your unfulfilled commitments and, and your lack of ability to follow through and I'll take your mess and make it into a masterpiece. Because again, Jesus is constantly trying to point them back. It's not about you. It's about me, Jesus. That's why the call is to follow him and the commitment is to follow through with that, with everything we have. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to have it right. Just come to Jesus. Lay your broken mess at his feet and he'll take it. So there's a call. There's a commitment. And there's a cost. We've talked about the cost as we've gone on somewhat, but, it, but it's here, right? It's, it's apparent. And, and I think that the, the easiest way to describe the cost what we see, you know, we, we could name some things, right? Jesus talks about shelter, comfort, 
right? We can talk about the not having a home, being in exile, cost of, of family or traditions, of friends or the safety of home. But ultimately what Jesus is saying, here's the cost of discipleship. It's everything. It's all of you. Your entire life. The cost to follow Jesus is nothing less. Jesus wants it to be so clear. That's why his responses walk us through. And if we look, think about just a little bit before in Luke 9.23, what does he tell us? Anyone who wants to come after me has to deny himself daily, take up his cross and follow me. The cost is our entire lives. Because Jesus doesn't want just part of us. He wants all of us. So to follow him means we have to count the cost and recognize we have to be willing to give it all over to him. There's nothing off limits to God. That's a hard thought for some of us. We like to think that we can hide some things, right? We can keep on a piece of ourselves. But God says, no, no. It's all or nothing. I want all of you. We see the costs. And you know what's interesting? We don't get the response of the men in these passages. I was reflecting on this, and you know, they, uh, there's different ways the gospel teaches us sometimes people respond. Maybe they heard this, and like Peter and the other apostles, many times they were rebuked, they received it, and they were corrected, and they grew in their faith, and they continued walking after Jesus. <laughs> Maybe they were like the rich young ruler. They heard it, and they weren't ready. And it cut them, and they ran away weeping. I pray it's the former. But, but again, it calls the question for us. How will you respond today? Have you counted the costs? Have you thought that what the call is and the commitment he makes of us? I want to say that one last thing I think that I didn't include. You know, there's a call. There's a commitment and there's a cost, but I think what we see throughout the entirety of the, of the Bible and what Jesus is trying to imply here is that there's also a reward, right? There's a reward. And, and what Jesus says just in a few verses before is that what does it profit a man to, to gain the whole world and lose his soul, but whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. Simply put, the reward is this. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. See, Jesus made us for himself. We're we're made in the image of God. We're made to be in relationship with God. Jesus sustains us, Colossians tell us, by by his word. We, We continue to breathe and have life, and all that we do is because Jesus is continuing it. Jesus is now, the scripture tells us, interceding on our behalf at the right hand of the Father. The end of our days, we know, the picture in Revelation, it tells us what it will be. We get to stand forever before the throne with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation proclaiming, holy is our God. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, is Jesus. So if we rightly, rightly believe and know and understand the reward, then of course, of course we can hear the call and think through the commitment and we can count the cost and say, yes, it's worth it. It's worth it.
because there's nothing greater. Nothing more than we were made for. Our very purpose. Uh, think about Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, but Ephesians 2, 10 telling us that we were created. This is workmanship. Created for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in. There's nothing better than living out the thing for which you were made. And our reward at the end of it all is Jesus himself. Jesus doesn't want your full understanding of what it means to be called. He doesn't want a perfect commitment. He doesn't even want a fully you know, formed theology of what it means to count the cost. You know, I was just reflecting on this, and I think with this hard word, what I wanted us to hear today is Jesus is crying out and saying, I want you. I don't want what you bring. I don't want what you think your strengths are, what you think your weaknesses are. I don't want your trauma. I don't want your, your, your hopes and your dreams. I want you. Just you. That is the greatest gift we could ever be given. God of all creation looks on us and sees us right where we're at. And he says, yes, you. Come to me. Follow me. Hear the call. Follow through with the commitment. Count the cost and say, yes, Jesus is worth it. Two practical thoughts, and I want to share one more story just to help as, as, as I was thinking about this. For anybody that might still be struggling today, I just want to share this word. Jesus knows what is best for us. He's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. Right? Right? So when, we read so when we read this story, if these words seem harsh to you, I want you to come back and remember all that Jesus has done. All that he is. His faithfulness. He's never failed us. He made you, so he knows what's best for you. So when he says these words, it's not to condemn, but again, to call them up into what it is they truly need. And it's the same for you and for me. Jesus knows what's best for us. We can trust him completely. And then just again, I want to just encourage you this week to think about Jesus is what's best for us. He is worthy. There's no other. No other name under heaven which will receive all glory and praise. It's Jesus alone. Jesus took on our place at the cross, right? Jesus died the death we deserve. He rose from the grave, defeating the power of sin and death. He is seated at the right hand of God, and he will return one day and make all things new and unite heaven and earth. He is the one who deserves all the glory, power, and honor forever and ever. And so because he is worthy, we can praise him. It is what we need. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus this week. Hear the solemn warnings, but even more, receive the sweet mercy he has for you. One last story. 1911, there was another expedition. Uh, a man named Roald Amundsen was also embarking on to be, trying to be the first man to the South Pole. Uh, in all actuality, he wanted to be the first man to the North Pole. But upon hearing that two Americans had potentially beat him there, he decided, I'm going to shift to the South Pole. And Amundsen, um, looking back, uh, again, with the, the, the gift of hindsight, we can see did 
just about everything that Captain Scott didn't do. Amundsen had a team that was uh, concise and that was trained in every area they needed to be trained in. They trained for three years on skis. They were Norwegian, so they literally brought in one of the, the, the reigning champions of skiing and had them train the entire expedition and then go with them. Um, they knew that dogs were the best route. They had spent time in his previous expeditions in, in the North Pole area learning from the Inuit people. And so they actually put a, aside the, the, the often pride that came from thinking they knew better and learned from them and practiced. They, they used the same clothes that the Inuit people used, and they were better prepared for the cold. They used the same practices of how to train the dogs and, and work through the snow. He learned he knew about creep, the phenomenon of creep, and so he soldered all of the uh, fuel cans so that they were protected from the cold. So much so that it said, you know, some six months later, there was another crew that was going out and found uh, one of their cans that just they'd ended up not even using, and it was still completely full. He came in, he trained four of his five men in navigation. And they used a smaller, lighter tool that they knew would be easier to pull. And as they prepared to go, uh, Amundsen was single-minded. He was focused. He said, I am not here for adventure. Adventure means I've done something wrong. I will be the first man to the South Pole. As he continued to prepare, he marked every um, outpost with flags in every direction for half a mile so that they got off course they could find it he stored extra food he stored extra caches of fuel so much so that on their way back the men actually gained weight Munson and his crew were the first to make it to the South Pole and all of them returned home and lived to tell the tale See what happens when we think through the call, the commitment. We count the cost and we know the reward. It's right there before us. Our reward is even greater. Let's turn to Jesus. Father God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you speak and lead and guide us. God, I pray for everyone here today. I know in my own heart, uh, this can be a hard word. I just pray, God, that you would soften our hearts. You wouldn't let us turn away from you. But in your mercy and your grace, you would help us to hear. Help us to see you. Help us to receive the truth of what you've said and to to truly think about the call, the commitment, and the cost of discipleship. To receive the sweet mercy that you, Jesus, you were committed to us. You took it all the way through to to the finish line. You died for us. That you're still calling out to us and you want us. So help us today, God. Just to come. If we're tired, if we're weary, hear the words of Jesus say, Come to y'all who are weary, broken hearted, and I will give you rest. If we come wanting to grow, then help us to come to you and humble ourselves and say, God, I'll wait for you. In the proper time, you'll lift me up. God, wherever we are at today, I pray if there's any here that do not know you, that's maybe today's the first time I've heard this call to follow me. I pray the good news of the gospel 
would overwhelm them. Holy Spirit, right now, you'd be leading them to yourself. Break their heart over their sin and even more help them to see the goodness of their sweet Savior. God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. Pray this all in your holy and blessed name, Jesus. Amen.